This is Daniel Fagell, and you're listening to the AI in Business podcast. Part of our mandate here at Emerge is to constantly build our library at Emerge Plus. That is to say, construct best practices, frameworks, infographics for what AI strategists and AI catalysts really need to have on deck. That is to say, ways of building strategy, ways of streamlining adoption, ways of building AI roadmaps, and also ways to find AI opportunities within their business. These are the non-technical business skills that bring AI to life, and that's ultimately what Emerge Plus is about. And we have a huge panoply of these frameworks that we've built over time, and people often ask, well, how do you do it? The good news is we don't have to do all the hard thinking. Some of the smartest folks in the world when it comes to applying AI in the real world are our guests here on the AI and Business Podcast and are in our network and our Rolodex and Emerge Artificial Intelligence Research. And it is from brilliant minds that many of our best ideas and frameworks have actually come from. And our guest this week is absolutely no exception to that brilliant mind theme. Adam Oliner, at the time of this interview, was the head of AI at Slack. Slack obviously was acquired not all that long ago for many billions of dollars. Slack, a very well-known Silicon Valley unicorn. Adam is now the founder of a stealth firm in the Bay Area, so he's no longer with Slack. I think after a company gets bought, sometimes very talented people spin out and do their own thing. That's quite a natural transition. And Adam had been with us last year, and I decided to pull him back in and talk about a topic that he hinted at in his previous interview, but we didn't get to get into in depth, and that is how do we find AI opportunities? What is a lens of thinking? What are a set of steps and phases to uncover the AI fit, to uncover where AI value can be unlocked in our business? How do we actually look through a pair of goggles that will show us here's where the business needs and the data assets can come together and actually deliver value in the business? Adam obviously has a very robust technical background as head of AI of a Silicon Valley unicorn. You certainly need to be well-grounded there, but he does a great job of being able to convey these phases and steps and the way that he thinks about the process in a way that essentially anybody can listen to, can use, and can apply. So I appreciate Adam's way of explaining things and being able to break things down, and I hope that it makes it easy for you to apply some of these ideas in your own business. And if you're interested in using the wider library of AI best practices for finding AI opportunities, building a strategy, building a roadmap, and even conveying the ROI of AI when it comes to making the business case to leadership, you can learn more about those best practices as well as our full AI use case library at Emerge Plus. It's emerj.com slash p1. It's p is in plus and then the number one, emerj.com slash p1. And you can learn more about Emerge Plus there. Without further ado, let's fly into this episode. This is Adam Oliner here on the AI and Business Podcast. So Adam, glad to have you back with us here on the program. I really enjoyed our last chat about the strategic advantage of data. We've got a couple good topics to start with today. I wanted to kick us off on the theme of building executive AI fluency. You know, people tune into the show, including your last episode, to try to get smarter and be able to enable this stuff in their business. When you think about, you know, executive teams and leaders who might not be technical building AI fluency, what does that involve for you? What do people have to learn to make this stuff work? Yeah, thanks for having me back, Dan. It's a good question. I think about it in terms of sort of a, a constellation of potential business problems that you would want to attack with AI on the one hand, and then a bunch of data on the other hand. And the, the process of assessing those business problems, assessing the data, and then assessing the potential bridges between the two. And that's the sort of image that I have in my head when I think about identifying AI opportunities. And I, we can dig in on each of those. 
So if you think about the, the sort of business needs, like what are the right problems to target with machine learning, with AI? So mostly what you're looking for are well-formed problems with measurable impact. So a sort of negative example would be, I just want to understand my business better. Well, okay, what are the units of understanding here? And how would I actually measure whether or not I've accomplished this? You can certainly slice up that problem and find good sort of AI opportunities within that problem. But as a general, like that's the project, it's not really well-formed and doesn't have measurable impact. A good example would be something like, I wanna reduce the average time it takes a user to perform some specific task. And in fact, that's a great example from a class of problems that are often really good targets for machine learning inside of a product, which is to look for user friction or look for dead ends. Basically any place where a user is asked to make a decision or perform some repetitive task, those are good opportunities for automation. And I think you know this is maybe a sort of unsexy application of AI, but it's a really good one. You know, a lot of people want to chase after the shiny new product or the shiny new feature. Those are usually more expensive and, and harder to get traction for. But if you look at all of the places in your product where you know repetitive workflows are really just unpleasant or difficult for users, those are great targets. Yeah, yeah. So all right. So so many things to tap into here. I've got this mental image, and hopefully you listeners do as well, of business problems on one side, data on the other side. We're going to fill in the blanks on both sides together with you. Obviously, working at, at Slack, you know, you guys have oodles and oodles of users and thinking about user friction is is a nice, for you guys, probably a rather common place where ML would be, you know, deployed and used and, and leveraged. When you think about kind of fleshing out that grocery list of conquerable, bounded business problems that have a measurable impact. You know, I'm imagining this in the mental left-hand side here. If I'm building that grocery list because I want to be able to pick the ones that are going to be the best fit for my business, what are the other questions I can ask myself to flesh that out? Because I, I fear, Adam, that a lot of folks are just looking at what their competitors are putting out in press releases and thinking that, you know, that's what the AI landscape is. What are smarter ways of thinking through it? So one way to think about it is in terms of what are the kind of ML capabilities and are there ML capabilities that are common across different business problems? So to, to give an example of this, um, we built a recommendations API at Slack internally, and this can drive a lot of different recommendations throughout the product. And so we build that one ML capability, and now we can drive you know, recipient recommendations in the composer or channel recommendations when you join a new channel or from Slackbot and so on. And we don't have to do much new ML on the back end. It's just sort of wiring up the front end. And so if you have a class of business problems that can all be served by the same back end ML capability, that might be a bridge worth building. Cool. And I can imagine that being once we have the grocery list on the left side, we can say, do these cluster. The word recommendation comes up seven times here, guys. Is there a way for us to build something that can kind of tackle all of those? That's sort of something you're getting at. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. And, and that might help us kind of pick the business problems that are important. You also brought up something, and maybe there's some color you want to sprinkle onto it, around um, are there repetitive workflows for either employees or for users? Is that maybe another useful lens? Or what are the, you know, it's it, it's almost it's almost a little bit of a, a limited lens because I think that the idea of AI equals automation is a pretty limited way of looking at AI. However, for low-hanging fruit, it's not a bad one. I mean, it should be in our, our bag of tricks. Do you think that can be a useful way to start building that list on the left side? I think it's certainly a useful way to get started, partly because when you have those repetitive workflows, you're getting pretty structured labeled data often from users. They were faced with a question. They 
perform the sort of cognitive task of answering the question in some way, that is the label, that's the answer, the right one. And you get a lot of these examples and now you have kind of a nice data set for doing machine learning. And this is specifically on sort of the product side. There are of course lots of potential business problems that you could tackle internally, for example. So, you know, even if you're not making a new product or changing an existing one, you can think about on the back end, how do I make my services more performant or reliable? Or how do I uh, keep things from breaking in the same ways that they've broken before and things like that? You know, to give an example of this, we recently built a spam filter at Slack. So people were using the, you know, invite to Slack feature as a way to spam people with email. And uh, so we built a, an internal tool that filters out spam. Um, and that was a really nice ML project. It was very well contained. And often when you're shipping internal tools, the, the sort of burden is a little bit less. Um, you don't have to sort of jump through as many hoops to ship a non-customer facing feature. And so looking internally is another good place to identify great AI opportunities. In order to do that spotting of opportunities, is it useful for, you know, we're talking about executive AI fluency, is it useful for leadership or the people who are in the room doing the brainstorming here to have some familiarity with the use case range in their industry or adjacent industries or some conceptual understanding of how data and algorithms come together to solve problems? It feels like a lot of the time, Adam, those conversations happen with, you know, I don't mean ignorance in an insulting way, but just just not really good context on those two things. How important are those or, or are there other kinds of knowledge you think that people in the room have to have to spot problems that are worthwhile? Yeah, so let me maybe finish fleshing out these like two constellations please, yeah, and the bridges please, between please. them, because right. um, I think that that gets to to the answer to that question. Awesome. So on on the other side, from the business needs, you have your proprietary data. So this is your strategic asset. We talked about this yes, last time. Yes, that's that's how you build yeah. this moat. The questions you need to ask about the data are things like: Are they clean? Is it clean? Is it reliable? Is it timely? And you know, if you have like a single clean, current, correct tabular data set that exactly includes the information that's relevant for a problem, then you're in great shape, but you almost never do. So the question becomes, what will it take to get you closer to that? And modern ML doesn't really require a table like I described exactly, but the further you are from that, the harder it is. So if you have data scattered across a dozen different systems, inconsistencies like mismatched IDs that make it impossible to join across those data sources or missing or messy values, then if nothing else, you know where to start in your AI readiness journey. So you know, might wanna like Google a concept called a feature store and just start getting your data into a state where it's uh, at least tractable to talk about, do you have the data necessary to tackle one of these problems? And then of course, now you have your, your problems, you have your data and how do you bridge the two? And I think even at the executive level, you don't need to know algorithms and how they work, but it's useful to understand what kinds of things ML can do. I think if you imagine it as just a, a magic box that thinks like a person does, then you don't have any ability to assess the distance between a data and a yeah. solution. Honestly, the list of things that ML does is kind of small in a sense. So it does things like prediction. You, you have some number of inputs and it's going to predict a number or a category or something. You know, Or clustering is another example where you're just grouping things. And honestly, what like those two things that I have just said really does kind of cover the vast majority of <laughs> yeah. machine learning, because yeah, you can think yeah. about you can think about forecasting as just being prediction, but where the value is for some future time. Yep. You can just think about ranking as being predicting numbers for a bunch of things and then sorting them based on the predicted numbers. You could think about recommendation in the same way. 
And so, so in a sense, like once you understand that, like I'm trying to think about this as either grouping things or taking some set of inputs and making a prediction by number, category, whatever, those capabilities are serving as your bridge. And so if you can kind of understand those, which is not, I think, that hard, then you can start to think about the problems that you could tackle. So going back to thinking about workflows and user friction, if you're presenting a user with an empty dropdown and they have to select something from that dropdown, well, they have a bunch of information about the task they're trying to perform, the context of this dropdown, like what are they trying to accomplish and so on. And they're just trying to pick something from a list. And so that is a great example of a prediction problem. If you can give a model the same information that the user has when faced with that blank dropdown, and you just try to predict which of the things are they going to select, and you could make that the default instead of just showing them a blank dropdown. It's a very like small example, but that's the kind of thing that ML can do. And really, everything else is just kind of building up on top of that in various ways. Yeah. Well, one of the one of the so I really like what you're saying here about not remotely technical at the end of the day, Adam, but having gone through Andrew Ng's course painfully and slowly in Coursera, uh, you know, understanding that ultimately, you know, you have your clustering and you have your, you know, you mentioned kind of prediction, kind of taking whatever, wherever ML is, is being applied and saying, well, it's one of those two, you know, applied through this kind of lens. I think that's helpful. So for you thinking through kind of, hey, ML can do these kind of things. And then having some examples of each for you, that'll allow people to make problems click and say, oh, yeah, that's prediction or, oh, yeah, that might be clustering or something like that. It sounds like that concept is important. Yeah, I think if you, you know, if you read press releases or you take Coursera courses or something, you can be led to believe that ML has to be really complicated and difficult. But at its base, there are sort of a small number of fundamental capabilities. And if you can understand those, you're off to a great start. And then there are other ways to think about it, which is that some people have hooked together, you know, forecasting and clustering and prediction in really complicated ways where now you have, you know, self-driving cars or something like that. But a lot of the time, those solutions are reusable. So to take an example, you can just go and download an object recognition model that's been pre-trained. And you can show it images of sort of everyday type of things, and it'll tell you what's in the image. You don't have to go and rebuild that. And so... If you have a kind of uh, a list of those sorts of capabilities that you know are available to you, then you can start to think about ways of plugging those together. Like to give an example, if I have an object recognition model, then I could, if I have say um, a product catalog, uh, someone could take a picture of a thing that they have and it could say, oh, you know, this is a, a chair. So let me now look up on my website, you know, other chairs, and I could give them a list of those things. And all they've done is taken a picture of it. Yeah. But you know that there is there exists this AI capability of going from an image to a list of the things in that image in text. And sort of building up that list of things in your head is sufficient, I would say, to start to map out the bridge between the data and the business needs. Great. So I like that. Hopefully that's a take-home lesson for those of you listening in. Last question on, our last sub-question on this first topic together, Adam, um, is around the other side of the table, which is which is data. You know, you had mentioned, you want to look at things and say, you know, is it clean? Is it reliable? Is it timely? You know, it's normally not. So how far are we from getting there? One bit of color I want to throw on that is, do we look at data first and then figure out business problems? Do we do business problems first and then go say, well, what data would we need for that? Do we do them both concurrently? Do you have any kind of order you prefer here if we're going to think about finding opportunities? Usually start with the business need. Okay. I think having a sense of what kind of data is available to you when you think about the business needs is useful. 
if you construct a list of problems you want to tackle and find out that you have data for none of them, that feels like a bit of a waste of time. On the other hand, if you have a problem that's sufficiently valuable to you, even if you don't have the data or the data is a mess, you can go about addressing that. Yeah. You know, add logging to collect the data that you need or do something even more heavy handed, like you know, use Mechanical Turk or something to get the right labels. And if it's a sufficiently important problem for the business, then you can sometimes find the data. But if you start with the data and then say, you know, where should I go from here? I think you run the risk of targeting low-hanging fruit that isn't necessarily the most valuable fruit for the business. Being seen as sort of churning out an endless list of low-value features is a good way to not change the culture at a company. Yeah, it's tough to get buy-in unless somebody can tie something to something meaningful as well. You know, the, the enthusiasm for toys is uh, limited at best. Um, so, okay, uh, so, so you basically begin with the business problem and then say, okay, what data would this require? And then that's when we we go look at the data because I guess the way I see it is there's so many pockets where data is being stored in so many ways. It's impossible to just you know audit everything or something in one fell swoop. But if we say, look, here's the major clusters of problems we have. Here's the kinds of data we're going to need for them. Then we can do our investigation and auditing only where it makes sense, so we don't take you know 12 months to say here's the state of every little drop of data in the business. It seems like that might help hone our auditing process to some degree, Adam. Or yeah, I think starting at the business problem and then thinking about what are the possible bridges that could get you there, what data do those bridges need to start, in a sense. And uh, for those of you listening in, it's useful to have a data science savvy technical person like Adam in the room to, to validate, validate those hypotheses. Because what a, what a pure business person might say, oh, we would need this kind of data to solve this problem sometimes isn't, isn't exactly it. So multiple expertise in the room. Oh, I will say, you know, someone like me is not sufficient, right? Uh, oh, the, for sure. Not by yourself. Is, yeah, well, uh, but I mean, even someone who is an absolute expert on all of this will not necessarily be able to tell you exactly what data is required for one of these problems. So you might pick a good business problem and say, okay, well, let's start logging X, Y, and Z. That should be enough. You might do that and then go and build a model and find out that the predictions are yeah. okay, but maybe not sufficiently good for the business problem that you're trying to tackle. There's not a great way to assess that until you look at the data and actually try it. Big time. Yeah. We can't get around the fact that this is iterative, right? We can't get around the fact that this is uh, what probabilistic. I mean, you know, who knows how many problems at Slack even you guys have been like, this should be solid. And then it's like, you know what? The data just doesn't shake it out as it is. We got to take a different approach. I mean, I imagine that happens every now and again. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And there is not a great solution to this. You, there are a lot of questions that ML engineers will hear and they'll sort of cringe because they know that there's never a satisfying yeah. answer to it, which is like, how many examples do you need to train this model? Ridiculous. Like, I, have no, I have no idea. Like, I just, I'm never going to be able to give you a satisfactory <laughs> answer to that question. And I'm sorry. And this is a sort of form of that, but it's even worse because you may not even have the data yet. And so what, what are the features that matter? I, you know, I can make an educated guess as an expert but I honestly won't be able to tell you until we try it. Yeah, I, I, well, I, I guess I would say this, and let me know if you'll give this a thumbs up or thumbs down. If you got smart subject matter expert folks in the room, business people that know what matters to the business in the bottom line, and data scientists who at least have a damn clue as to how data has been used historically, we've got our best chance, our best not, not a guarantee, we've got our best chance at running down a rabbit hole that isn't empty. But like you said, it might still be empty, but, but at least we'll have a better shot if we've got a little bit of a, a thinking mix to go in. Is that correct? That's certainly true. Okay, cool, cool. So second theme here that uh, we had chatted about off mic, which I'm excited to dive into is really around assessing AI readiness. You know, companies are listening into you right now, and we're going to be, you know, turning this into all kinds of additional content. 
and really wondering where are we starting from and what do we need to know about ourselves to know where to begin with our AI journey because so many enterprises are in exactly that position. I know you've done a bit of thinking about this beforehand. Where did you want to get us kicked off on this topic? Yeah, so so if you've gone through the the assessments that I, I just talked about, so you have a reasonable data story, you have an understanding of the kinds of things you can do with that data, a candidate set of business problems, then the last step is to evaluate some particular solution. You selected a bridge that you might want to build. Now, this will seem like a strange thing for me to say out loud, but there's nothing you can do with AI that you can't do without it, just possibly much, much worse. And on the flip side, the AI solution is usually much more expensive from an implementation and maintenance perspective. And that's the question that's before you. Let's say that the best possible ML solution is basically up against, let's call it a heuristic. Sometimes the ML solution will be much better, but other times your data just doesn't cut it and the heuristic will win. Again, the heuristic almost always wins on implementation cost. And if there's an easy heuristic to try, you should almost always try it first. If nothing else, it sets a baseline that an ML solution would need to beat. If it turns out that the heuristic isn't good enough, then this is when the company needs to ask a few questions to decide whether or not they want to build the ML solution. There are basically three of them, I would say. The first is, is this problem important enough to the business that I'm willing to invest in a better solution than this heuristic? The second is, how much new infrastructure do I need to put this solution into production? The more ML infra that you already have, the less new stuff you'll need. So a mature AI company will already have most of this infra and will instead be thinking about something like additional cloud spend or something. And then the third question is, do I have good reason to believe that the ML solution will outperform this heuristic by enough to make it worth it? It might be better, but if it's only better by 1%, is that worth all the investment that it would require? Any good ML engineer will have run some kind of an experiment to estimate this improvement, but sometimes you don't know until you try. Yeah, I like the idea of going through this lens. So what you're saying is when we're picking a project, use it, use AI when it's the right tool for the job, right? If it's like, hey, we've got a rule set here that really cuts the mustard and, you know, like you like you had just mentioned, we think that the expense to actually eke out another 2% is going to be pretty big from where we're starting. Maybe this isn't the right the right move. So for, for you, those three questions might allow us to take a further filter. We've got the grocery list, we've got the data, we've got some bridges that might be potential projects. Okay, let's run them through this new ringer. This is kind of what you're advocating here. Yeah. And so I can give you an example from Slack. So we recently published a blog post about the spam filter that we built. And the you know state of practice when we launched that project was that uh, a bunch of people were manually curating some heuristics around what constituted invite spam and what didn't. You know, the, yeah. the word casino in Cyrillic, <laughs> oh, you know, like, like, okay, you know, this, <laughs> this word and so on. And so, you know, they, every time some new pattern of spammy behavior would emerge, they would have to manually go in and curate those heuristics. And so there, there is a baseline. Like we know how well that's performing. We know roughly, you know, what's getting through and what's not. And in particular, one of the things that we identified as a problem were how many valid invitations were being filtered out by these heuristics. It turns out some people run legitimate casino businesses and maybe they want to use Slack, you know? And so the target that we needed to beat was the performance of this heuristic. And the question was like, how much is it going to take to get an ML solution into production? You know, do we have the data that we need? Do we have the labels? Do we have the infrastructure to train a model and put it into production and so on? And so we went through that evaluation. Um, and it turned out to be really successful. We had the data and the labels that we needed, everything sort of lined up. And so that was an example of a successful project, but it did start with a heuristic. 
and and that was sort of doing the duty for a while. Yeah, yeah, but like you had said, then you have the baseline, right? If you just went in with the ML model, you could always be asking yourselves, honestly, guys, if we just had a list of a thousand and two rules of you know casino and you know Comic Sans and whatever else you want to do, would we just be saving money and doing better than we are with this thing? But now you know you, you can you can figure it out and you can say how much do we think we can improve it, and then you can move forward from there. Exactly. Cool. And this touches on, you know, maturity itself. So one of the factors that you brought to bear was, hey, based on where we're at, what's the additional investment we're going to need to actually potentially enable this? And a company that's done, you know, dozens of AI projects in different corners of the business, you know, a firm like Slack, you guys have Lord knows how many, you know, algorithms in deployment, but you know, an enterprise is just starting off, maybe they have less. So people are somewhere in between here. What does it look like to get a sense of where we stand? I can imagine I'm a Let's just say I'm a COO or I'm a, I'm a head of um, head of compliance or, or VP of fraud somewhere at a bank. And I'm saying, well, okay, I've got some problems, but what is my AI maturity? You know, where, where are we starting from around here? What are the couple ways you would want to define AI maturity to know sort of what we're, what we're standing upon and how much more investment we need to take? Because I, I imagine a lot of non-technical folks would need the conceptual understandings that you have. Yeah, I, I think about it in three parts. The data, which we've already talked about, infrastructure, which can be sort of basic ML infrastructure, like the, the ability to train a model and to serve predictions in production at scale, things like that, but can also include ML capabilities that you've built for other purposes. So a recommendations API, for example, might have some models that you've already trained on your data and that's already in production. And a company that has an API like that might be further along in the maturity spectrum. And then the third part is the ability to put these things into production, right? Like actually ship features or ship capabilities that deliver some sort of a, a value to, to the customer or to the business. And some of that is cultural. I mentioned that sometimes you don't know whether an initiative is going to be successful until you at least try it on some smaller scale. And, and that is sometimes a cultural leap for a company. You know, the, the idea that you would say, all right, we're going to try to ship uh, you know, feature X in, in Q4. And then, you know, halfway through Q4, you say, no, we, we did a sort of test model and the performance wasn't really good. So we're going to abandon that and do something else. For some companies that might generate embarrassment or frustration, but a mature AI company would just say, yep, okay, it was, it was the right thing to try. We went in, it was a good experiment to run. Now we know we either can go and collect more data or and try this again in a year or whatever, um, or just say like, okay, it wasn't a good target. The, the data is not good enough. So those sort of different elements, the, the third of which is maybe more like organizational or cultural, along with the data and the infrastructure, I think are the, the key pieces to look at when you evaluate maturity. Cool. Um, so good conceptual understanding there for the, the listeners here. Last little sub question to the second topic as we wrap up, Adam is around using initial projects to help to build some of that AI maturity. You know, like you said, if you have a certain amount already rolling, you know, in terms of you've got some talent, you've got a culture that can kind of embrace iteration. You've got, you know, some of our listeners are familiar with our model for AI maturity as well. We can do a little bit more, but projects, the ROI of a project is not just, ooh, I made this financial return. It's also, hey, we now stand on this new higher level where we can enable other things. We can more nimbly adapt and move with AI broadly. How do you think about picking projects that are both a good fit for the data and the business need, but also maybe a good fit for leveling us up? We, we call it kind of a capability ROI, if you will. How do you like to think about that? 
Yeah, it, certainly the AI initiatives that people like to talk about are the the high value ones where they say, yeah. oh, you know, this moonshot, if it's successful, we'll totally do oh, it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In, pra- in practice, the companies that do that have a money printer, right? They, they have some part of the business that's just printing money. And so they're fine with a massive upfront investment because again, it's not necessarily guaranteed that this will be successful. And I think if you talk to people who work at for example, self-driving car companies, they will tell you that they've you know poured billions and billions of dollars into this problem, and you still do not have the ability to go and buy a self-driving car. And the fact is, it just turns out it's a much harder problem than a lot of people were expecting or hoping or thought it would be. We're 15 years since uh, you know Stanley winning the DARPA Grand Challenge, and still you know I don't have my self-driving car. So how much longer is it going to take? I don't think you can get an, a really confident answer from anybody. So again, unless you have somebody who's pouring billions of dollars into your initiative, you probably don't want to go for the moonshots. So instead, the type of project that you want to go after is something that is sufficiently valuable that it's worth doing, but maybe has a lower cost for some reason. And this cost could be lower because it doesn't require all of the infrastructure or a massive amount of data. Maybe like our spam filter, you really only need the invitations and some simple labels. And you can train the model on your laptop and the traffic that goes to the prediction serving is relatively low. And so, you know, it doesn't require some massive cluster serving those predictions at, you know, billions of times a second or anything like that. And so that's a great target where it's really valuable to protect our brand and protect our users from spam and doesn't require all of that investment. And the good news is that anything that we build in service of that project can now be used for other things. So if you, for example, don't need to train a model, but you do need to serve predictions, well, great. Now you have prediction serving infrastructure. And the next time you go for a project, the, the cost to that is much lower. Cool. If I try to nutshell this, going for the, wow, this would be just a, a rock star project. If we could double our revenue with this amazing model, right? That, that, that's maybe what looks cool in a magazine. But uh, what you're getting at is that in practice, we're iterating, we're experimenting. Some things are winning more than others. Some things are flopping, but we're okay. We're being uh, prudent about our experimentation. And we broadly build up this floor of ability to be adding value in enough places and take advantage of enough new opportunities that that's really the advantage here, more so than thank goodness that home run worked out for us. Yeah, the big projects are high risk and high reward. The smaller ones often have a relatively low cost and are sufficiently valuable that they're worth doing. And they often reduce the cost both of putting into production, you know, project number two, but also even the cost of evaluating the feasibility of project number two. So if you have the ability to really quickly train a model and test out, like run an experiment in production to test, you know, with 1% of your traffic, whether these predictions are are serving the, the purpose, if you can do that relatively cheaply, then it's cheaper not just to to build project number two, but to ask the question of whether it's worth doing at all. Yeah. So there, there's a, there's an ROI in just the learning. Like you said, you do enough small projects, you get a feel for what's viable and what's not. Unlike if you take the big swings first, where a lot of your guesses, you're going to learn the hard way for the first time. And maybe that's not good for all companies. Yeah. And if if on that maturity spectrum, you're you're relatively low in the sort of organizational and cultural maturity, then shipping those quick wins, those, those sort of things that are likely to succeed and don't have a huge cost, that can start to change the culture at an organization because they say, oh, this is pretty cool. This works really well. That was a win. And so they'll be more likely to say yes to project number two, even if maybe the risk is a little bit higher. 
Yeah, that's that's going to be the reality. Gradually, uh, what are the, the frog in the frying pan is the wrong analogy, but for some reason, it's the only one coming to mind where, you know, the, the C-suite isn't going to want to listen to this whole interview, Adam, and take it all to heart. They're doing other stuff. They're not bad people. They're just doing other stuff. But but if they can see enough chip away value, then we can maybe get some investments for some bigger project. Build a track record of success, I would say. Yeah. That's that's the right way to think about it. Yeah, that's that's probably better than a frog <laughs> in a frying pan. Anyway, Adam, hey, this has been an excellent second interview. I really appreciate you jumping back on with us. And uh, thanks again for sharing your insights. Thank you so much for having me again. So that's all for this episode of the AI and Business Podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode. We do our best to work hard to find a good mix of talent here for the show. We like to bring on startups you might not have heard of. We like to bring on big blue chip companies. We've had head of AI at Raytheon, really high level folks at Comcast, HSBC, etc. We also like to be able to pull in the folks that are moving the fastest with AI, and that is to say Silicon Valley unicorns. And so Adam's perspective is important to us. I hope it's important and useful to you. And if you want to support the show and you've learned some things that you've been able to apply from the AI and Business Podcast, it would mean the world if you could support us by leaving us a five-star review on iTunes, what is now called Apple Podcasts. You can search for the AI and Business Podcast, drop us a five-star review, and type up what you like about the show, what you've learned, how it's been useful for you, because it is your feedback that I bring back to my team when we think about our editorial calendar, we think about our interview calendar. It's really your ideas that feed the show and have helped it to evolve over time. It's your ideas that have helped us to recently spin out the AI Consulting Podcast. So for those of you who aren't aware, we now have a show called the AI Consulting Podcast. You can find that on iTunes. You can find that on Spotify, etc. And that was your idea as well. So your reviews help us to generate great ideas and they also really do support the show. So if you want to support the show, consider leaving us a five-star review on iTunes, which is now called Apple Podcasts. And otherwise, stay tuned for the next episode next Tuesday here on the AI and Business Podcast. Podcast.